in the corner, back by the woodpile, my favorite podcast. It's also my favorite place to take a dump. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is a guy whom we'll call Shui Xiaolawai, an American I met in China who's had a life that I think is interesting enough to share with y'all. We get to talking about his life as a foreigner in China, especially the mishaps, but first we discuss his previous career, that of a deep sea diver, which sounds terrible to me. One time for one job, I did a scuba job, but uh, it was just inspecting uh, the shallow fountain outside of an office complex. It was in February in Texas, and it was freezing. Um, the rest of the time was, was has all been surface-supplied air, which is uh, the compressor is on the boat or on land, and uh, air is pumped through the compressor through the umbilical into my dive hat, right. wherever I'm at. But the diving you mainly did was the one with the tube that goes into your helmet right. from the top. First of all, I, you told me it's super dangerous. Yeah, there's so many things that could go wrong. Your hoses could bust. Uh, and bust, you mean like you just drowned? It depends what hose busts. There's different safety features like your main hose is your umbilical hose. That's the main air supply. Attached to the umbilical, you have several different types of cables. You have, first is your air hose. Then you have communication wire, so you can communicate with topside, and topside can communicate with the diver. Uh, then you also have, it's called a pneumofathometer, pneumo hose, which will check your depth. It will tell the, the topside your depth. But this pneumo, though, if there's an emergency where your, your umbilical air stops, the pneumo is hooked up to extra cylinders of oxygen, of air, that you can stuff it in your hat, stuff the hose in your hat, and topside will turn on the uh, t- turn on this uh, tank, mm-hmm. so you'll get fresh air. And then on top of that, uh, you also have it's called a, a. There's a few different terms. There's a bailout bottle, a pony bottle, a come home bottle. It's all the uh, tanks on your back. The, the one tank on your back, depending on which term you want to use. And that's your emergency air. So have you ever had to use that stuff? The emergency stuff? No, we did training in dive school where they they turn off the air and I'd have to go to emergency bottle. I haven't, but I knew a couple times some divers that it, that we were working with. Some diving supervisors are not that bright, and uh, something would happen, and something did happen. And in fact, one of the guys I went to dive school with, something happened to him uh, offshore, and. Uh, so you mean like the, the, the kind of practice like in a swimming pool or something or. Uh, no, we were we were practicing in the it's a river that runs through Jacksonville, mm-hmm. maybe the Jacksonville River. I don't know, I forgot. But it's a, just a big wide river uh, that that the dive school is attached to. Every day we do our dives in that river. There was an accident that I can't remember what happened, but the diver had to turn on his emergency air, and he he panicked pretty pretty bad about that. And I I heard that that ended his diving career. Really? But he was he you know he was green. He was fresh off of out of dive school. So, so he decided to end his career, or they ended it? He decided to end it. He went on to doing something else. You told me about one incident where something happened where a guy got sucked through his own tube or something. Oh, that is a, a threat. This tube is called a check valve, and it's designed that air will come into the hat, but there's, there's a rubber flange or a rubber valve 
or it's called the check valve, that will stop the air from coming out of the hat. So for example, if something happens where the umbilical gets cut anywhere above the hat, naturally air will try to escape to the surface. Mm -hmm. So without this check valve, if this check valve is even, even uh, faulty, that can still happen. So if the, the diver's umbilical is cut, all of the air in your suit, in your body, in your lungs, everything, will try to go out of this one check valve. And doing so, it causes a pretty much a suction. It's differential pressure, delta P is the term. Everything, everything will get sucked out of a hole about 3 16th uh, diameter. It pretty much it sucks the meat off your bones. Oh It'll suck, uh, suck your eyes out, all of a, out of a little hole. Wow. Like if the deeper you are, the more pressure and the bigger the suction. And you worked on oil rigs. Oil rigs, platforms, yeah. Uh, yeah, barges, all kind of stuff. Uh, we were just pulling up damage from the hurricanes. You know, divers have a saying, a hurricane is a diver's best friend because that gives us lots of work because hurricane will come through this oil field, tear up these platforms or barges or oil rigs, and uh, our job will be to go and clean up the mess, pull up all the scrap, pull up um, anything we can. Well, we were doing a night dive. Uh, I had already been in the water for that day, so now I was on deck tending. Tending is basically taking care of the diver oh, in the yeah. water. Um, From the boat. You, you'll hold the, the umbilical, you'll give him slack, you'll take up slack, you'll send him things that he needs. Anyway, this diver I've known for a while, he was down at the bottom. We have a crane. We were on a barge. We were next to this damaged uh, rig. He was on the bottom with the crane on the barge, and he was attaching some metal, some bars, to the, the crane hoist to be pulled up. And so as he attached everything, and he was telling the, the supervisor, the dive supervisor, to tell the crane operator to come up, he had his hand on, on the pipe, guiding it up as he went along, as it went up. And he didn't know there was uh, another piece of metal just above. Mm -hmm. And so basically he got pinched, his hand got pinched and crushed between the, the pipe, uh, the scrap metal coming up and the scrap that was uh, still down there that he didn't know about. So the diver yelled, I'll stop, I'll stop, and uh, we had to figure out what we were going to do. Every dive team should have the diver and then the standby diver in case of emergency, that the standby diver would jump in after mm -hmm. the diving diver. I'm not sure what was going on at that time because I was sent in to get the operation manager at the time that was on the boat to tell him that there, we've had an accident, wake him up, because it was maybe two or three o'clock in the morning. So by the time I got back outside, he was already um, out of the basket onto the boat onto the, um, the barge, and uh, yeah, his, his hand was pretty messed up. I think it took about 11 surgeries to semi-correct his hand. Anyway, uh, last I heard, he was not diving anymore. He'd gone to uh, non-diving supervisor mm -hmm. is what his job was. So they took care of him in another way, kind of? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they did. I, and then, then shortly after that, I think uh, I left that diving company and went somewhere else. Talk about a decompression. So you, you go down to a certain depth and you stay down there for a certain time. Say, for example, you go down to 75 feet. You have a bottom limit, a bottom time, that you can stay down that 75 feet before you have to start coming up. 
Otherwise, your body will start to build up nitrogen in the body. And, um, <laughs> and you'll get a Radiohead album, The Bins. The Bins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if you come up too fast, if you come up too fast, the air, all, everything, your body is compressed, the oxygen is compressed, the nitrogen is compressed. And as you start to come up from 75 to 70, 65, whatever feet, there's less pressure. So these bubbles that were about the size of a pin tip are now maybe twice or, you know, I don't know how much bigger, but they will start to expand and they will start to get bigger and bigger. And the nitrogen will go throughout the body. And if you brought up too fast, it's called the bins because these bubbles, these nitrogen bubbles will stop. They go through your blood system. Usually, if they're too big, when the problem occurs, they stop at your, your joints that bend. So like your elbow, your knees. Oh. I think it was, the original term was stanchion's disease. But it started back with King Louis, one of King Louis the the fifth or sixth or something, because um, they were building stanchions under the sea. On your way up to the surface, you always have to take decompression stops. So if maybe for example, from seventy five feet, you start at seventy five feet, you'll you'll come up to sixty five feet. Maybe you'll take a ten or fifteen minute stop just to let the nitrogen adjust. I guess is the good term. And then you'll come up to maybe 35 feet. You'll take another 10 or 15 minute mm -hmm. decompression stop. And then you'll come up and eventually when you get to the surface, you've got uh, less than five minutes to get yourself undressed into the decompression chamber and blown back down to usually, I think it's the, the depth that you started at, that you were deepest This at. is in the boat? Yeah, this will be in the boat. Uh, it's just a, an airtight tank, uh, maybe usually call it eight, nine feet usually it's a double chamber double lock which means there's two chambers in the tank the first one to get in the chamber operator will compress that first chamber uh, down to whatever depth so the outside the seal is locked the outside door is sealed and then he'll compress the inner chamber that you will actually go into lay down and rest that will be blown down to equalize in the, the chamber you're in now then you can open the door to get into the inner chamber. You gotta stay in there for X amount of time. Depending on how deep you are, you can stay in there from 10 minutes to a couple hours. Mm. Uh, but there are emergency situations, like if you get the bends or bent, depending on how serious it is. There's tables, they're called decompression tables, that tell you how deep and for how long you have to stay mm. in the decompression chamber. There's this one guy I know. Something happened to him on a job. I, what I hear was the tender's fault and this guy got messed up pretty bad. When they brought him up to the surface, he was put on a table of Z tables. They're called the Z tables. They go from A to Z. He was on Z tables. And basically, that means um, you get, you're stuck in this little eight, nine foot by three foot uh, chamber for three days. Oh my goodness. In there for three days. Is there a book in there you can read? Oh yeah, yeah, you can bring books. Um, a lot of divers will bring in um, Game Boys and um, and tablets, although they say um, because it's all oxygen, it's 100% oxygen, they say it's not a good idea because you can actually start a spark and oh, wow. explode, but that's rare enough that divers will almost always bring in their little electronics anyway. <laughs> And you said that this job is so unappealing to people that they often recruit from prisons. 
some prisons actually have dive schools in the yeah, prison? Yeah, Chino, Chino Prison in California. Uh-huh. If you think about it, it really kind of is to their benefit because, well, first of all, the dive training program at Chino, from what I understand, obviously I've never been there, but it's... So uh, you say. <laughs> it's run like a military program, so they got to get up at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, they got to do PT, they got to do training, they've got to do study work. So it's run, run like they, I guess they would learn it in the military and then once they graduate and they get out of prison, they're sent offshore for three or four months at a time, maybe longer. And it's basically like they're back in prison again, mm-hmm. only with freedom and pay. So, good pay. Yeah, pay is pretty good. Now the pay is pretty good. When I first started in, this, in the diving industry, and um, Hurricane Katrina had just hit. I can't remember exactly the year. Mm-hmm. Up until Hurricane Katrina, divers were only getting about 8 or $9 an hour. But after Hurricane Katrina hit, it was so big and it had done so much damage that um, slowly and gradually, this company would need more divers than usual. So they'd raise their pay to $12 an hour. So all the divers would start going to this company. So this company, Company B, they, they, they were losing divers. So, oh, we got to raise our pay. So they raised to twelve fifty an hour. So just competition. Competition, competition. Free until market. eventually, until... Um, when I finished graduating dive school, salaries were up to $20, $22 an hour. Cool. And these days, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the same. Maybe the pay went down. Maybe it's up more. I don't know. Did you see some really cool things down there, like some marine life? or In the Gulf of Mexico, the bad thing about diving in America is um, we go by the ADC, Association of Diving Contractors. The rest of the world will use HSE, I think it's called, Health and Safety Executives or something like this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the waters in Gulf of Mexico are, until you get several, maybe several miles out, 50, 100 miles or more out, the water's almost 100% black. So that's one thing they, they train you in dive school, is to do your work by feel. Why is it black? Oh, just nasty gulf. It's oil spills, leaks. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, traffic going through there, you know, shrimping is it, boats. Is this coming from... The American coast or from Mexico or both? I'd say, uh, I, I've never been down towards the Mexican coast, but I'd say it's mostly from the Americans. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, like in the, the North Seas or uh, out in uh, the Middle East somewhere or, or Africa, I'm, uh, I've seen lots of pictures where the water's very clear and beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the other countries won't recognize American certification, so Americans can't go work in other countries. Uh-huh. The thing that pisses every diver off is that all these divers from England, Africa, Mexico, wherever, they can come and work in America, but we can't go and work there. Why? From what I understand, it's a thing called the Jones Act. American divers would go work for foreign companies, but they'd get hurt and they'd try to sue the company, oh. and the companies would say something to the effect that, oh, you're not our, from our country or you're not our nationality, right. so you can't sue us. This is just what I've heard. So. The Americans, the government passed a law called the Jones Act. I don't know where Jones came from, obviously. It's some book, a guy named Jones, saying that uh, if an American works for a foreign company, that they do have the right to sue. So these foreign companies said, okay, well, we, we just won't hire Americans then. So that's pretty much where came from. That's the story. I don't know how true it is. All to say, you don't get to see much. Yeah, I think that's what I was getting to. It's, I can almost see nothing until you're super far out. From land and then it's really beautiful and really clear. Yeah, I remember one time I was on this job, it was crystal clear water, you could see several feet down 
hundreds of feet down, maybe this rig we were on. It was a it was a floating rig. So basically, it would float around the sea, and you had to drop anchors to keep it from floating off. Uh, I could look down off the off the railing, and I could see sharks were swimming around, circling the uh, the stanchions, circling the legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some dolphins. I saw sea turtles and all kinds uh-huh. of. That was way off off uh, from coast. Is there any danger from the animals? Not usually, because usually we're making so much noise with our tools that most things stay away. But I do remember uh, maybe a year before I came to uh, China, there was a big accident. This guy was um, doing whatever he was doing on his work site, and apparently a big manta ray, this just huge manta ray, came. You know they have the horns. Well, it's just bad luck that this manta ray came along and the umbilical got hooked in between this horn and it pulled the guy up off the site and it pulled him up so fast that he got bent and um, your lungs explode because either you hold your breath while you're surfacing oh. and or you go up too fast. So did he die? Yeah, he died. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It must have been a big manta ray. Must have been. I didn't, I didn't, I haven't seen the pictures or anything, wow. but yeah, it must have been. They get really big. There's also been accidents like there's human error. A lot of times working inland, if you're an inland diver, most of the time you're working in a factory or a power plant or a refinery. And I remember a few years back, it was some mom and pop dive company that weren't very safe. Apparently they didn't have a standby diver. They only had a two-man crew, which the ADIC requires you to have at least a three-man dive crew. When you're working around... uh, especially refineries or factories, they're usually by rivers or lakes where they can get intake with intake and get water to run through the pipes to cool the factories or refineries or whatever. They were working on uh, an intake pump that would intake, pump up and suck up all the water from the lake or river or wherever. It was supposed to be locked out and tagged out. Lock out, tag out means that the diver going into water, the supervisor and somebody working for the refinery or factory will sign a piece of paper, you'll each have a, an orange or a red lock. You'll turn off the power to usually the intake pump. There are little holes where you turn it off that you can stick your lock with your tag saying it's locked out and that will keep anybody from accidentally turning it back on. That's why it's called lockout, tag out. Anyway, something happened where it wasn't properly locked out and tagged out and this, the diver was maybe doing maybe inspections. I don't know what he was doing, what his job was, but that pump turned back on, and he was sucked up into the pipe and gobbled up, and uh. they, there was no standby diver to, to go and help, and uh, I guess the fire department rescue divers had to go in and get him. And, uh, was that the left of them? I guess not much, not much yeah. Okay. Sucked into propellers. Hey, Spun Counter Guy here, just taking a little break to do something that's been suggested to me by some of the listeners. And that is to mention that if you'd like to help out in the corner back by the woodpile, you could become a patron just by clicking on our Podbean page, the little icon that says patron. And of course, that's found at podbean.com. And just do a search for Spun Counter Guy or in the corner back by the woodpile. And if you wanted to be a sponsor or underwriter or advertiser, shoot us a line via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. 
and we'll hash it all out. And there's another option. You could actually just PayPal us via that email. And I say all this because I love putting the podcast out, but it's a labor of love for sure. And if you threw a few dollars of any amount our way, we could justify making more. Plus, I'd mention your names on the show with such adoration, folks might mistake that I was in love with you. Okay, enough begging. Back to our regular programming. So you graduated from your career of diving, yeah, and you decided to go to China. I've, I've always had China in the back of my mind. I think it started when I was 18. I went hiking the Appalachian Trail, and I met uh, another hiker uh, who had mentioned that as soon as he got done with the trail, he was going to go to teach English in China. And he told me all the details, like you don't have to speak Chinese, and uh, you just have to have a, a degree of any kind, and... Uh, you can go teach English. So I've always had an interest in China, and I thought, hmm, you know, I'd like to do that. So even through dive school, even uh, when I got married, uh, that's always been in the back of my head. So finally, when I separated from the wife, I thought, you know what, I'm free. I got nothing else to do. I might as well just come to China. So I came to China, and uh, I thought I'd stay here for maybe four years. I thought I'd be able to learn Chinese pretty quickly. I kind of like how we can learn Spanish very quickly. But... I was way wrong. It's hard. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like learning four words for one, because you have the tones mm-hmm. and then the word itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I never even considered that. So after my third year, uh, when I was in Chengdu, I, was, I realized, like, I don't know any Chinese, and this is my third year. So okay. one of my coworkers that I was with, he had been here for about eight years, and he recommended uh, a study book to learn Chinese, and I bought that. And I studied a little bit while I was in Chengdu. Instead of teaching, I enrolled in uh, university for six months to just study Chinese, and that, that really helped a lot. What are some of the, the coolest moments you've had in China? Uh, I guess one cool moment was uh, during the summer in Sichuan, uh, in Chengdu. I did a summer camp for Liang. Do you know Liang, crazy English? Oh, yeah. Uh, I did a summer camp for his, his summer camp in Guiyang, Guizhou. Did you meet him? Uh, I did. I met him. Is he crazy? He's an asshole. Uh, according to his wife, he's a, a <laughs> wife beater too. Yeah. yeah. No, he's just a hundred percent jerk. I remember the second to last day of the camp, there was a gathering in the auditorium. All the students were uh, sat down, and uh, there were, was me and maybe five or six other foreigners. They had put us on stage, and there was a guy, uh, another Chinese guy, who was there during the summer camp. They was talking to the students, and then all of a sudden, Leon came walking up while the guy's talking, he just jerks the, the microphone out of his hand. The guy just turned around like he's stunned. He's like, what? What just happened? Uh-huh. Lee Young just started talking to the students, and uh, we were up there for maybe two hours, and he never even once turned around to recognize us. But you said this was a good experience? Well, it was an interesting experience. Ah, okay, okay. Just interesting to meet somebody who's in China, supposed to be so famous for his school and English. Well, explain to me what crazy English is. Crazy English is, it's a system, a self-study system maybe? I'm not even sure. Well, this guy, Li, Li Yang, his, his claim is that uh, he couldn't speak English until he climbed up to t- this top of this mountain and started shouting English words. And then all of a sudden, he magically could speak English. Yeah, so in China, you will, especially in the like little squares in the, in the schoolyards, you'll hear... Chinese is yelling out English words. Yeah, and that's, it, that was it, his thing. Yell, yell English. Yeah, and I remember just freaking me out. Like, what is what is wrong with this guy? I thought that was crazy. Well, that was that's the method. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's funny. The, the, there's so much propaganda embedded in his summer camp. Like, 
I couldn't speak much Chinese, but one of the other foreign teachers that was there with me, uh, he could, and he was telling us how uh, there's so much propaganda, how China's so great, and it was just, uh, he would be shouting to the students, China, America, Japan. <sighs> you know, kind of putting putting uh, Japan down. Yeah, the hierarchy, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just interesting to, to see how much communism is threaded into everything right. in China. 听到第一月长青色脚响钟声在歌唱人们压抑心慌寂寞难当呼唤着偶像。I went traveling, I spent a month traveling through Yunnan province. I went down to the rice fields of Yanyang, down to Shishuangbana, to uh, almost to the Vietnam border. You went to Mongolia, right? I didn't. I wanted to go. I was actually going to go this summer. Or in uh, inner Mongolia. Inner Mongolia, in Mongolia, yeah, inner Mongolia. I never did. Maybe, oh. maybe I'll try to go before I leave. Well, tell me that story. A student or somebody that you met was going to help you go. Oh, oh, that guy. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I went to um, Gansu, Jiayuguan. That's the western end of the Great Wall. Right. Uh, he, I met him at. Um, we worked for the sales team or something at a small training school here, and I met him, and I guess we became friends and. Uh, you know, I like to travel with somebody. I'd rather travel with a girl, but I didn't know any girls at that time. And and he was available, and I was like, hey, let's go, let's go. Uh. He didn't mind wearing that wig and the stockings. And, and. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I, I told him I wanted to go some travel somewhere, and he was like, oh, okay, well, I can go with you. So, uh, you know, I, I would think that since he's Chinese, he would know how to travel in China. When the day that came to, to get the tickets, I... I gave him the money, or I might have even gone with him. And he bought tickets from Luoyang to Xi'an. And then his idea was going to be to get tickets from Shanxi, Xi'an, up to Jiayuguan. So we did that. When we got to Xi'an, we couldn't get tickets all the way to Jiayuguan because there were no tickets left. So we had to wait like half a day. We got tickets up to Lanzhou, which was, uh, I think I want to say it's about 11 or 12 hour train ride. But there were no uh, seat tickets or, or uh, sleeping tickets. We had to get standing tickets. So we had to stand for 11 hours. Good night. In this packed train car. And we got up to Lanzhou. And then we had to buy another ticket up to Jiayuguan, which is another eight hours. But luckily, we got seats up there. Um, so we spent another eight or so hours, seven or eight hours in Lanzhou. Lanzhou was a nice city. I liked Lanzhou. It was clean. It, was, uh, it seemed small from what I saw. And it was right on the Yellow River, which was really, really kind of cool. So anyway, we finally made it up to um, Jiayuguan. About the time that we got our booked into the hotel, we tried to get tickets back, but there were no tickets left. So we couldn't get back for so many days. But he said uh, that he had to be back for work. So then uh, I had no choice, but I... And I, and, I told, you, and you were paying for everything. I told them I'd pay. I'd pay for the tickets and everything. But I wasn't expecting to pay for air tickets, so I had to pay 1500 I think. Anyway, it took up all my money. So. And didn't he come back and ask for money so he could go see a prostitute or something? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, while we were there, uh, well, he didn't ask for money. He's like, do you mind if I call a girl and you can go somewhere else and for a little while? He wanted to call a girl into the room and... Uh, I just said no. I'm not. You, you can go get get the girl somewhere else. You gave him the money, or no? No, I didn't give him money for that. Right before we finally got back, he told me that he needed a little bit more money for his time he had to take off of work. 
but I didn't give it to him. So basically, I spent the whole vacation, like four days, just held, held up in the hotel room because I had no money for us to do anything else. Oh, no. <laughs> so there's that. This is the same guy that uh, said he can get me a driver's license, and I gave him 5,000 RMB to give me a driver's license that I never got. Uh, you still friends with this guy? I haven't talked to him in a long time. Man, you got shook down, man. I did, but I was, I was a newbie in China. I didn't know any better. Yeah. So it happens to a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah. I've seen some stuff that a lot of people won't see. I've seen the, uh, the Tibetan people do doing their migrational, I don't know what you call it. They take one or two steps, they get down to their f on their hands and knees to their face and stand back up, take a few steps, put their hands up in the air, get down on their hands and knees and down down on their belly, get back up, take a... I don't, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I've seen it, yeah. I don't know what you call not, it. Not in real life, I've seen it on TV. But I've, I've witnessed that uh, when I was in wow. western Sichuan. And, uh, What's the distance they go? I don't know what the distance is, but it's it's far. Uh, I mean, they do that all day. It's got to be months. They got up. They migrate up to Tibet. Uh, I think they, they migrate up to um, Patala Palace, is the Dalai Lama's old house um, there in Tibet. Have you seen any like tragic stuff? Oh yeah, I've seen a couple old ladies get run over. I was maybe 40, 50 yards down the road from them. Me and a friend were, were looking for a taxi and I, I was standing out on the corner and I looked to my right and I saw just these two people. I didn't know if it was man or woman or whatever. I just saw two people sleeping on the sidewalk and I noticed there was a, a white SUV. I don't know if they laid down before the SUV got there or or after the SUV got there, but they were in front of it. I saw a man getting into the SUV, and I remember thinking to myself, surely he can see them. And so I looked back the other way, and another 20, 30 seconds later, I hear some yelling and shouting, and uh, I look back, and uh, this SUV is just going thump, thump, thump over these people. Oh, no. Did he stop? Yeah, he stopped. One lady looked like she was all right but it looked like the lady closest to the SUV got completely run over on her legs, and uh, wow. they were just laborers, mm -hmm. and I guess just trying to take a nap. I don't know how to explain it, yeah. but this was one of my reasons I'm ready to get out of China. They're just, I'm surprised there's still a China left. I'm, I'm surprised they haven't destroyed themselves already. Mm -hmm. They don't think about anything. They're just, oh, let's go this way. Oh, yeah. let's go that way. There's no rhyme or reason. Oh, there's a test tomorrow. Yeah. I'm gonna get it. A foreign teacher to teach me in one day <laughs> yeah, how to exactly. teach English. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, though, you know, I, th I was a little bit disappointed when I did go home. I went to Stone Mountain. Chinese people say they love China. They love they love their country. But at the same time, every day when they're driving their cars, they're going to throw their McDonald's bags out of the window. Mm -hmm. They're going to throw garbage down on them. They're going to litter. So obviously they don't love their country. You know, I thought, you know, America's not like that anymore. Sure, back, you know, we had that big uh, no, no littering campaign. And mm -hmm. I thought that pretty much cleared everything up. But then I got back to America and I went to Stone Mountain to the, the laser park. After the, the show was over, you know, I was really disappointed just to see how many people just left their trash for somebody else to pick up uh, behind them. I mean, the whole, the whole field was just... Uh, a disaster. Mm -hmm. I was really disappointed to see that because I thought we were better than that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I found that we're not. Well, we're not as bad as the Chinese, like where everybody litters and throws stuff out the window, on, 
and onto the street, but I was really disappointed that people couldn't pick up after themselves. Have you learned something about yourself being here? Another thing about dive school, I remember one of our instructors was always telling us, embrace change, embrace change. And I definitely uh, have learned to embrace change in China. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. Don't expect change. anything is what I had to teach myself. Oh, uh, yeah. Don't expect anything. That's true, too. Because they'll say something's going to happen and it won't. Yeah. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Love, love, love.